Greetings, my friends. Welcome back to Trails, Tales, and Spruce Tea. I'm the producer and co-host, Shallon Jodry. What you're hearing is the shore of the Ulsudguk, which is a Mi'kmaq place name for the river. I learned from Bernie Francis means cutting through, as in cutting through the hills. I actually heard that this river was later named after a man called Eber, which later turned into Bear River. And this is here in southern Nova Scotia. This episode actually plays a special role today as it was part of a small project for a course I just completed with Trudy Sable, where we looked at Mi'kmaq place names around or not too far from where I live, as well as various ethnographic methodologies for learning about or learning from landscape. One of these ways is to sit in place and reflect to share stories, which is great because I love listening to stories and sharing stories. So Frank and I were sitting in his truck under the Bay River Bridge, looking out from the mouth of the river towards the Annapolis Basin, it's called, and I asked him about this place. So he told me his thoughts and stories, and I wanted to share them with you all as well. So here's Frank Muse talking about the Olsutguk region. Sitting here looking out underneath the bridge with a view of the Digby Gut. And just off to our right there a bit is the point where our ancestors used to live. And you can see just out in the water a ways there's two little rock buttons sticking up out of the water. It was probably part of the of this peninsula that come out from from the, the land. Mm. And so if you think about this land before all this development, the bridge and everything else that has taken place here, this was a very protected area, like a little lagoon. And so this river probably meandered and turned and maybe went over and, and uh, was closer to Bear Island. And then if you look over here to the to the right more, there's a couple little tributaries, little brooks, freshwater brooks coming down, which probably was a good source of uh, fresh water. So all the elements were here for, for, for this would be a nice place for uh, a permanent uh, community site thousands and thousands of years ago. When we f were first made aware of the site here and uh, we spoke with a number of people about this and some archaeologists. Um, it was pretty fascinating to us to see and to actually come down here and physically walk the land and and to see the what was left of the site and some of the the clan mittens that were up underneath the 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 stumps of the old trees that had eroded and you could see where the clams were, were built up and, and the archaeologists said that there would be, you know, you know many layers of, uh, of, of uh, these clams shells being built up on, on the shore where they would just empty them. So, so it really made us think about, you know, their diets and probably clams was probably one of the main staples of their diets year-round, so they could they could harvest them 
you know, fairly easy here. And uh, even though it was, it'd be pretty cold sometimes, but they could probably still harvest clams, you know, in, in this time of year. And because of the mud, it, it would make it very soft for them to just put their hands and, and go right down into the mud and, and find the clam without having to dig them. So, you could still was, use other tools, right? Yeah, you could still use other tools, and I'm sure they did. You know, they had probably different types of of uh, rakes and things that they used to to scoop it or shovels and, or just using other shells to dig the hole. Once you got up into the sand part, then, then it was more digging with with different instruments. It looks like a, we've got a visitor here. It looks like an eagle just coming flying over. He's just soaring over. He's going right over the site. I remember coming here for many years after knowing the site was here and just would sit here and just kind of try to imagine what it must have been like living here two, three thousand years ago. What was available, the landscape. What was things that they did here? Why did they choose this place other than it being a good protected area? But it was also very easily to access the Digby Gut and to go up what is known as the Naples Basin or the Naples River. And so they would have all that fresh water and all the, the fish that would come up in through there to, to spawn and to migrate. And then you had the Bear River besides here before, before all the dams and everything that was put on the water systems. It was... Uh, Probably a very abundant river for lots of different different species of fish. I'm not sure if they would have had used small weirs here in the, on the tidal water, but I can't imagine why they would not. You know, they'd have to check them every day if 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 they put them high enough that the water would completely go down below their their weir systems but I would think it would be something that they would, would consider doing. But I'm sure they were able to get other shellfish here too. Right off the mouth of this was a place where, you know, there's still a little pocket of a bed of scallops and there's lobsters that come in here. So, you know, on low tides, they would be able to actually go out there and, and, uh, and collect different shellfish other than clams. And so I heard they had a really neat system for, for collecting lobsters they, they would have a large circular hoop and they would weave it in with either with rod or leather or something and then they would just put a little bit of food on it and then they would just drop it straight down in the water from their canoes and they would actually watch the lobster crawl on to get the bait and when they had when they felt they had enough there then they would just pull it straight up and the pressure would hold them on the on their hoop and they'd bring it up and dump it in their canoe and and just keep doing that till they had enough for a feed. <laughs> I've never tried it, but, but <laughs> it would be an interesting way to, to catch lobster. You know, talking with people over just around the, co the corner here on the left, it's, there's another cove, and it's called Smith Cove, actually. And there was a, uh, one lady in particular that used to walk the beach quite a bit, and especially after a storm, she would find arrowheads laying on the beach of them all different mostly small ones that were used for hunting might of quartz and and shale types of harder rock she had collected hundreds and hundreds of them and you know and I, it got me thinking about 
why there they're be, like what? Why would there be such a, you know, uh, an abundance of arrowheads there? Mm -hmm. We were kind of maybe guessing that maybe that's where some, when things started falling apart between the British and the Mi'kmaq, maybe that's where they had some confrontations right there in this, this area, or that the Mi'kmaq were protecting the mouth of this river, and it was maybe a narrows where they could uh, defend their land and their area and their families better from, from that point. So maybe that's why there was such a, an abundance of arrowheads just laying there on, on the shores. They were shooting at the boats as they came in. It's hard to say, you know, but it, it, it's, it's neat to try to think, could that be a possibility, why? And we've been told that, you know, some of our sites, our bigger sites, are out in the water because of the, the rising of the water. So it's really hard to imagine looking out here in Naples Basin here right now and seeing, even though it's kind of low tide and the volume of water here, that to think that they were just tributaries like rivers at one time and the tidal water never come up this high. And so it's, it's over the years, thousands of years, it's, it's the water has taken the land back and made all these bigger ravines and things like that. And so, but it all makes sense, you know, when you, when, you know, when you think about the main source of transportation was, was on the water by canoes and things like that, this was an ideal place to have a, a settlement where you could just travel in many different directions to go different places. You could go through the gut, go across the Bay of Funday to New Brunswick and up in that area and follow the St. John River all the way up into the, you know, that part of the land. You could come down, you know, the Bay of Funday from all the areas up around there and, all the communities up there that would come down through and and so there was there's also some discussions about maybe this was a central place for a lot of the bigger district council meetings to 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 be held because people could come from all different directions and this would be kind of centralized to some degree they could use the, the bay of funday to come down they could use the Naples basin the Naples River. They could use the, the Mersey River to come across from, from Bridgewater, Liverpool area, and then they could come down the St. John River and across the bay and uh, meet here. Then you think about time, and you think about when would they do that. So it would probably be around maybe once a cycle, like in four months, maybe when things were abundant, the water levels were a certain level, the waters might be calmer at a certain time. They probably did some night traveling where there wasn't as much wind and things. And, and, but it was really interesting to hear how they used the, the tidal currents to go back and forth the Bay of Funday. And they would go out with the outgoing tide and they would kind of make a V and they would head out toward the big water. And then once the tide changed, then they would, they would turn and they would come back and go, come in with the tide. And it would be a lot less effort to paddle if you used the current of the, of the tides. You know, if the tides and the currents and everything was right, it would probably make it pretty easy to, to do that, you know. I like how you said easy. I can imagine a lot of hard paddling. Yeah, Just well, I mean, it's... Time and energy. Yeah. Planning. You know. And so who were the paddlers, you know? Who were the paddlers of those days, you know? Was it the, the younger folks or was it the older folks or were the, the younger folks were the ones that... I mean, even their canoes that they used for traveling the bigger waters were, were mm -hmm. probably a little bigger, like mm -hmm. the sea, the sea-going canoes. Maybe, maybe they were up to 18, 14, or 18 to 20 feet long, and and they were able to carry more. Maybe there was four people paddling and one steering or something like that. And 
and they were probably going for many reasons. I mean, they probably transported families, but they also probably transported goods, you know, so there was all kinds of different, you know, degree of of reasons why they would travel for long distances. I mean, there was just the communication of people traveling, you know, taking messages and passing the wampums around and letting other districts know of certain things that's going on and, and when should they meet and, and why and, and who would be coming and, and uh, things they got to prepare for. I can't remember exactly how old the archaeologists were saying this site was. We do know that it's at least 2,000 years old because we reburied human remains from here that was dated over 2,000 years old. And so the site was here before that. And it doesn't mean that there were people here, for example, 4,000 years ago, and then they left. Sometimes when people think about a site being dated, they think, oh, it was used then. But we're saying the oldest that it's been is thousands of years, and it was used continuously, most likely, up until the people were, they were removed, or, you know, political strife, or what have you. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's probably so many contributing factors. Depletion of resources, the, the change of the land, the landscape, uh, all kinds of things, you know, and, uh, and just made them move. But, you know, I mean, it's always been classified as a permanent settlement and uh, they could tell that from the from the clam mittens to all kinds of other things the the fires everything that it was used year round in all the four seasons so they knew that people were here constantly there was always talk that we were we moved around a lot and and we probably did so they probably did send parties out to do certain things to collect things to fish on gather and to communicate and stuff like that, or just to go visit. There was always somebody here at the site to, to look after things. Which brings up the question of, how did they do that? How did they survive in one spot for so long? I just think about keeping fires and how would they collect you know, enough firewood to keep probably several fires going. But then I thought about after visiting a couple of old growth forests, how abundant the dead wood was, you know, for oh, collecting and, yeah. and to take back and dry wood to and to use for your, your fires and stuff like that. So I said, oh, so you stop and think about the landscape here. I can look at the, the, the species of trees. I mean, this whole land site here was probably old growth forest, which made it probably easy to travel, to walk on and things like that. So if, like to go to Kejimikujik from here, it would be easier and quicker to walk in a straight line across the land than to follow the waterways by canoe. Probably only a couple days walk where it might take you three or four days by canoe. So I think they did do a lot of walking and they had trails over the high, high grounds of, of some of the lands and that made it easy to actually even navigate if you just went from, from the higher, followed the ridges and things like that to, to travel. So yeah, there's all kinds of things you can think about and, and imagine what it must have been like and and, uh, and, the, and the variances of, of the animals that was here, you know, the abundance of animals, the moose and caribou and all these other animals that are 
you know, really scarce or, or gone completely. That was probably, you know, a big part of their survival, especially during, you know, the colder winter, winter months. So it's, it's really interesting to, you know, to think about this landscape, how the language has shaped it, how people have come here and, and used their language to shape the land and to see words being transferred from describing the landscape to naming places after people <laughs> has been like kind Smith's of interesting. Cove and yeah, the yeah. River Ebert. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so to see that unfold and to try to explain to people that you're, you're naming something that already has a name <laughs> you don't really need to give it another name. Thinking about the, the landscape here and, you know, what has caused it to shift other than, you know, the, the rising of the water but also some of the man-made things that have have uh, disturbed the, the waterways and, and how it affected other things. Uh, and the Bear River is a good example of something that was very plentiful to something that was shifted and the priority went from food to electricity. And so some of the main lake and water systems that fed the Bear River were dammed for, for hydro purposes. And even in my time, as a young boy, we used to walk to town, and, and there used to be, a, a, or there still is, a, a generating station at, at the foot of the hill. And there's, I think, three water systems, three dams on the, on the river that, that holds the water reservoirs to, to supply the, the generating station. And back then, it was very seldom shut down when we were kids. But once in a while, on a Sunday, they would turn it off for a while, Sunday mornings. And so became kind of a, a pattern and when we really noticed was in the spring when some of the fish were coming up to, to spawn such as the salmon and gaspro and shed and, and, and a few others when the powerhouse was off you'd get down there and the fish would be just swimming in a circle in, in the pool right in the right in the, the tail race of the of the powerhouse where it's where the water comes out and we never thought too much of it as kids so we we built ourselves little nets and stuff that we used to be able to put down in the water and the fish would swim around in the pool clockwise. And so we'd set the net and the fish would come around and go into our nets and we'd feel them hitting the nets and it was just made of chicken wire and we'd lift it up and we'd have like a, you know, seven or eight gas row or something in it and we'd bring them up and do that a couple times and we'd have a big string of fish and we'd take them home and my dad would clean them up and do things with them. We'd eat them. The other thing we noticed was if you were there at the very moment that they stopped generating power and you'd see the you know the water stop coming out and all of a sudden what what was there all the water went down the river and then what was left was just small little pools but you'd still see the fish and some of them were caught up on the shore like little tiny mud puddles almost and they'd be splashing around there then all of a sudden the seagulls would all come flying in and start going down and grabbing these fish and even before my time I was told that some of the elders, when they heard that powerhouse was off, they'd, 
they would get all get excited and they'd grab their burlap bags and pitchforks and they'd get down and they would just pitchfork like salmon and shad and all this out and and they would take it home and they they would smoke and dry the fish for winter and they thought it was a pretty easy way of collecting fish and so so we as the next generation saw this happening too and we we just took it for granted that it would always happen and it would always be there when we wanted it till after a while as we started getting older and we see we kept seeing less and less and less and less fish to one day I was standing on the bridge and all of a sudden I heard the power station turn off and so we sat there and waited and waited and waited and the water all come down went underneath the bridge and we looked up and there was nothing there was no fish flopping around the shores there was no seagulls and all of a sudden it really dawned on us that you know that well, it's it's kind of our fault that this has happened. You know, humans have uh, changed this the course of this water system, and so so for years we just stopped bothering with it. In the late '80s and '90s, that every once in a while somebody would say, "Oh, gee, I thought I saw a salmon jump in the river," or "Gee, I thought I saw some shed or something or gaspro." And so we said, well, gee, maybe we should do some studies on some of the little tributaries that's, that's feeding brooks. And, and we also talked with, with, with Nova Scotia Power about some of the dams and about fish ladders and, and allowing more water to, to uh, come around the dams to, to feed the brooks for, to allow fish to, to move around a bit more. So, so we, we worked on a number of different projects and, uh, and we took a couple of the smaller brooks that we we felt that you know fish were reproducing, and then we built some spawning beds and put in some digger logs and and deflectors and stuff to to try to help the the water channel a little better. And uh, sure enough, we started getting more fish to come back to the brooks to the point where we were able to start using our own broodstock to put fish back in. And I remember that day that the folks that were working on the water system were going down and doing doing the check and they come up all excited they said oh, there's two salmon in one of our spawning beds and they're spawning and we just thought that was the greatest thing and uh, we just started working more on it but it, it just took a lot of time and energy and, and uh, we ended up running out of but we did prove a point that it can be fixed if we want to take the time and the resources to to make it happen You are listening to Frank Muse talk about his stories and thoughts about the Ulsutguk, or Bear River. Flute music is by Rose Muse. Wellalioch, thank you all for listening and spending time with us. I'm Shalyn Jodry. And as Frank says, hear you later. <laughs>